trip up the Virginia Peninsula. I'm Chris Mikowski, and today on the Emerging Civil War podcast, we'll talk with authors Doug Crenshaw and Drew Gruber about their new Emerging Civil War series book, To Hell or Richmond, the 1864 Peninsula Campaign, today on the Emerging Civil War podcast. It's battlefield season in central Virginia, and if you find yourself in the Fredericksburg area looking for a place to stay while you explore our rich history, I want to invite you to check out Stevenson Ridge. Stevenson Ridge is an 87-acre historic property on the Spotsylvania Courthouse Battlefield. We have 10 historic houses that have been rebuilt on the property and modernized to provide a fantastic bed and breakfast experience. So you can go out and explore the battlefields during the day and come home and relax in a unique and charming environment. You can find out information about our individualized cabins and our rate information at stevensonridge.com. Welcome to the Emerging Civil War Podcast. I'm Chris Mikowski, and joining me are my good friends and colleagues, Doug Crenshaw and Drew Gruber. Good afternoon, fellas. Good afternoon. This is an august body of historians here. Uh, Doug and Drew recently collaborated on a book about the Peninsula Campaign of 1862. And so we thought we'd get together and and talk a little bit about putting this together. And uh, so, Doug, let me start with you, because I know that this idea came basically as an offshoot of your book about the seven days. And you and I had talked about, uh, hey, we've got a seven days book, but we need to get them to the seven days. Uh, Tell me a little bit about that. Well, after your conversation, I realized that was true. So I started thinking about putting it together. And when I started thinking about it, I said, you know, it'd really be good to have somebody who's really knowledgeable about Williamsburg and and all down that way. And I thought of Drew immediately. So I contacted Drew to see if he might be interested because I know he's a good writer, good speaker. So I contacted Drew and that's how it took off. So Drew, you get this phone call from Doug saying, hey, I've got more work that you could potentially do. Uh, How do you feel about that? How'd you feel about that? <laughs> I, I still don't believe it happened. And um, I'm thankful you all asked me to do it. Um, writing is not my strong suit being a product of New Jersey public schools. Um, <laughs> and it's hard to do from, from the front seat of the truck. Um, so I was so appreciative of the opportunity. Um, and doing this project reminded me, I think, of all the bad scholarship on the Lower Peninsula that has been recited time and time and time and time again. Not to say by any means that, you know, I'm I'm sort of the preeminent guy down on the peninsula, because that certainly belongs to other people who've been here much longer than than I've been around. But revisiting this for me, having, you know, living down here, revisiting this for me gave me a chance to wrap my mind around some primary sources that have been punted around for the last 160 years and maybe shouldn't have been. So, so grappling with that historiography, oh, something all of us as historians do, but uh, not enough of that grappling has gone on in the past up to this point, you're saying? Yeah, I mean, specifically, there's a lot of myth and mythology about the the Peninsula campaign that I think is is easy to get a chuckle at a roundtable meeting by by talking about. So it was nice to dig into those source materials. And it was also really nice to revisit some of the battlefield landscapes on the lower peninsula that that have been here that haven't really received a, a big or or rather popular treatment places like Eltham's Landing and Slash Church or Hanover Tavern. So and now 
Lee's oh, will. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Lee's will. Yeah. So, uh, um, Drew, and then, uh, I'm going to circle back to here in just a second, Doug, I promise. Uh, but, Drew, I, you just made a comment. I want to make sure that we clarify. You said hard to do from the front seat of the truck. Um, and, uh, you know, you've been on our podcast before, but for readers who don't know, you spend a lot of time on the road. And uh, maybe explain why that is. Yeah. So um, thank you, Chris. I appreciate it. I jumped ahead there. Um, not that I have an axe to grind about the Peninsula campaign or anything. Um, <laughs> just come on out with all my cards showing. Um, so no, I, I am um, humbly the executive director of Civil War Trails. Uh, so I oversee a program that offers uh, 1400 sites or stops across six states. So uh, I am one of two uh, full-time people who administer all six states. So it's just about 200,000 square miles of program. So I listen to the podcast a lot because there's only so many things you can do in a truck. And one of those things is not writing a book. Not it's, writing a... it's it's hard to bounce in the passenger seat as my coworker drives and try to keep thoughts together. <laughs> well, you, you, you wrote a great book. Uh, Doug, uh, Drew mentioned, you know, grappling with some of these primary resources that uh, he hadn't had the chance to revisit. I know one of your very favorite things is to get into the research library at Richmond National Battlefield. Um, you're like a kid in a candy store when you get in there. Tell me a little right. bit about what primary resource work is like for you. Well, if you, people who don't know, the Richmond National Battlefield Park has a fantastic library. It's a, I think it's the child of Fredericksburg's library because Robert E. Lee Crick was Bob Crick's son, and he developed some of the same projects down here. But the, uh, the, the original source material is fantastic. The secondary sources are fantastic. And if somebody's interested, all they have to do is contact the Park Service to make an appointment. They're happy to let you come there. But the, if, the original stuff is great. So I really enjoy going there. Candy stores, right. Now, you know, you, you were pretty fluent on the sources and the materials you wanted to use for the seven days. Uh, what was it like to have to kind of uh, refresh yourself for the peninsula? I got, uh, well, I didn't know anything at all about the Battle of Hanover Courthouse. So I had to learn all about that. And some of the things I thought about Seven Pines weren't necessarily so, particularly the Fair Oaks part of the battlefield. And I've had some people, there's a guy writing a book who's got uh, a great take on it. And I went out and have walked the land with the reports. And um, it really changed what I thought about the Fair Oaks part of the battlefield. It also was a revelation to me about Longstreet and Yuji's little quarrel, which you talk about in the book. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You talk about getting out on the ground, talking things over with fellow historians. Uh, and, and to me, that's kind of, I think, the, the way the best history happens. Um, but you really touch about like walking the ground. And uh, I know that both of you have been very involved with with preservation efforts um, because of the importance of, of preserving ground so that we can walk mm -hmm. it. Uh, Doug, let me have you talk about that for a second. And then, Drew, I'll circle back to you on that. You want to talk about the preservation aspect or walking? Yeah, and just, you know, being out on the ground and what can you learn about the battle from being out there? Well, any historian worth his salt knows you can't write a book about something if you haven't walked the ground. And the interesting thing to me about the Fair Oaks portion of the Seven uh, Pines battle is that if you really pay attention, the ground tells you the story. And people previously have written about it, not everyone, but some have written about it and have that portion of the battlefield wrong. And when you go out there with reports and you walk the ground, you can see the elevations, you can see that where the swamp was, you can see things that were crucial to the battle so you can understand it. 
So it's absolutely essential. Any battle, you have to walk the ground to really understand what happened. Drew, I know for you with your work with Civil War Trails, so much of that is like get people to the ground so that they can come to these sites. Uh, talk a little bit about that for me, please. Yeah, so um, I think I, I love Doug's comment. Um, and I think you can often tell when you read a Civil War book if the person hadn't actually been there. Um, but for example, like Eltham's Landing, um, had it not been for local historian and researcher Bill Palmer, um, multiple people had Eltham's Landing in the entirely wrong spot, not not even in the right portion of the county, actually. But when you go out there with the primary source material and when you talk to the locals who have farmed these fields, and if you know what you're looking for as far as material culture goes, you can do exactly what Doug just said. You can sit there and, and help correct the narrative. Um, so again, you know, I think oftentimes we need to tip our hat to the people who've been doing this work for years. Um, but folks like Bill Palmer, you know, you go out and walk Eltham's Landing with him. You take the official reports with you. And all of a sudden you start to realize that, no, these these authors before had it in the wrong spot because it's obvious that they didn't go out there and, and sort of consult those um, but the same thing could be said um, for the Battle of Williamsburg. We're lucky enough here in Williamsburg to have had a lot of the property um, archaeologically surveyed. So I can put you where specific regiments were um, with a great deal of certainty based on archaeological evidence, which is great. Um, so it's it was a lot of fun to sort of revisit some of these things from a landscape perspective, as Doug put it. Now, as we're tossing out um, place names and things like that, let's let's take a second and kind of trace out the Peninsula Campaign in broad sketches, um, so that if if folks are listening who aren't familiar with what actually happened in that campaign, we kind of give them a little a sense of uh, of context and and geography. Um, Drew, let me have you start since uh, you you handle kind of the Lower Peninsula stuff, and then we'll pass it off to Doug since he was the Upper Peninsula guy. If that sounds okay. Yeah, that's fine with me. Doug. Or, that maybe maybe I should test to make sure you read each other's portions of the book and have have Doug oh, do that. No, I'm... <laughs> if, I would, if I could, I would like to explain real quickly um, McClellan's strategy. Okay, go ahead. Very quickly, because it's actually a little longer story than this, but McClellan originally wanted to go by water to uh, attack Richmond that way, cutting behind Johnson, cutting him off and beating him to Richmond. And Lincoln didn't want any part of that because he was scared to death of the 47,000 Confederates in Centerville and Manassas. Um, he actually ended up on lower peninsula than he wanted to for various factors that we don't have time to go into. But he ended up down at Fort Monroe. And Johnston responded, came all the way down and headed down for the peninsula. I'm going to hand it off to Drew at that point. Yeah, so I mean, when you when you talk about the geography of the place, Chris, I think, which is the point of your question is really you have these three peninsulas in Virginia, the northern neck, middle peninsula and the peninsula, which is the one that has Fort Monroe at the base of it, which is what, you know, 60 some odd miles from Richmond, is it? Um, and of course, Fort Monroe is is in union hands um, throughout the entirety of the war, sort of a thorn in the side of the of the Confederates, uh, generally speaking, because, you know, it's pretty close to their new newly minted capital in, in Richmond. So. I think as Doug sort of alluded to before, uh, McClellan's not a massive fan of the peninsula because he knows that there's some earthworks and fortifications down here. But nonetheless, his army gets moving around about uh, March 17th. And uh, with alacrity, I might say, they arrive uh, seven days later with two divisions of the Third Corps. And that sort of begats uh, the beginning, as it were, of the peninsula campaign, I guess you could say. 
So they start marching northward up the peninsula. Um, why is Williamsburg a particularly important spot in the peninsula campaign? Uh, well, I mean, just like us, I, the people who designed the Williamsburg line, originally a guy named Benjamin Ewell, um, studies history. So he knows that, uh, you know, throughout history, uh, even before white people got here, the section of the peninsula that we know as Williamsburg today is the narrowest. So if you look at the peninsula on a map, you'll notice that Williamsburg is where everything squeezes together. Uh, and it's also the tallest point on the peninsula down here. Um, from a topographical perspective, it makes total sense to have a series of earthworks constructed here at Williamsburg. Um, but when Benjamin Ewell from the college, he's a mathematics professor, starts laying out the Williamsburg line, a guy named Robert E. Lee decides he doesn't like it and sends an engineer down to change it all around. But the Williamsburg line is, is only constructed to be a line of defense temporarily. Um, both Team Gray and Team Blue are wholly aware that once the earthworks at Yorktown and Gloucester have um, been eclipsed or abandoned, the Williamsburg line is only there for sort of a temporary hold. Because once both the York and James Rivers, which create the peninsula, um, are open um, to naval operations, the Williamsburg line is wholly untenable. Which is why throughout the siege of Yorktown, McClellan has what he calls sort of his um, his lightning uh, brigade. Um, you know, not a quote there, um, but essentially this group of ad hoc guys who are both supposed to launch amphibious operations are, and are mounted, they're ready at most times throughout the siege of Yorktown waiting for the siege to be lifted so that the Union Army can nip on the heels of the Confederates and make Williamsburg's line mostly untenable. And then, of course, from Williamsburg all the way until the gates of Richmond, we don't really have a, a defensive line like Williamsburg. So the Williamsburg line is constructed because people pay attention to history and they know it's going to be an important, an important choke point. Having spent a little bit of time um, on the southern peninsula, at, uh, at the lower peninsula last summer, um, it's, it's not like they had an I-65 that just sort of cruised up the middle of the high ground and everything was nice and covered. That's like really hard terrain to cross. And I noticed it's just lots of swampiness. It's wet. It's low. Um, so what was it like for this Union Army to try to move its massive bulk if I, if I might, Chris, I might jump in here for a second. Yeah. I think his, McClellan's original thought was he could use the York Rivers and the James Rivers to transport supplies and men. Mm -hmm. But to Drew's point, there was fortifications at Yorktown and across the, the river, which precluded use of the York, and the CSS Virginia appeared and precluded the use of the James. So I'll hand it back to Drew. Yeah, I mean, this is... It, one of the things for me that was amazing about doing all this is looking at both army commanders and realizing how good they both really were. I'll just throw that out there because both readily acknowledge what's what is and is not possible at the Hampton line, the Yorktown line, the Williamsburg line. Um, and by the time they get to the gates of Richmond, as Doug and I explored, not only are they handling these day to day operations, but they're shifting how their armies are organized like it's just crazy. Um, but you know, thinking more specifically uh, about this, you know, um, I think both army commanders are aware of and deal with something that I've heard historians not acknowledge at all, which is the fact that everything down here on the Lower Peninsula is tidal. So when the Vermonters launch at dam number one, one of the reasons that they're going to launch in the morning is because the tide is out. I've heard people lecture about the Battle of the Dam number one, and they're like, and all of a sudden they can't cross the river to go back. No, they were wholly aware 
that the second string of guys could not get across the river because the tide is going to come back up again. Um, and of course, you know, McClellan, to a certain extent, as we often hear, has this antiquated map of the Virginia Peninsula. It's got area, you know, rivers in the wrong areas, which sort of befuddles him on on D-Day plus one, as it were. Um, but almost immediately thereafter, they're they're aware of this. In fact, they're so critically aware of it that as both sides are rushing troops to the Virginia Peninsula throughout the siege of Yorktown, um, they are they are doing this as the tides rise and fall. So yeah, it is miasmic swamp down here, Chris. It's no fun to live here in the summertime. It's also no fun to be down here when it rains because everything floods. Uh, and then of course you get a tide on top of that too. And um, you know, this brings me to an interesting point, which is however however long I will study this campaign, I just have the extreme amount of um, appreciation for the individual soldiers and sailors who are in the in the trenches all day long dealing with things like rotten shoes and pants and it's just it's a gross place to be there's some days i don't even want to take tour groups out because it's full of you know ticks and chiggers and the tides up and it's swampy and i get to go home to an air-conditioned house in july and august are not pleasant no Uh, well, you know, and when I said that I spent some time there last summer, I have to admit, I wasn't even down there doing Civil War stuff. I have uh, a five-year-old or had a five-year-old who's now six doing bush gardens. That's a much different experience on the peninsula than <laughs> going through the miasmic slumps. <laughs> um, so, Doug, Drew just tossed something out there. I got to ask you about how good both commanders really were. Um, what do you think about that? How do you assess the performance of these two commanders? Well, that's a big question. Um, it <laughs> I think Joe Johnston was intelligent, could read a map, and he proved that. I think he was a poor communicator um, with Davis, with his subordinates, and he didn't handle Seven Pines very well at all. McClellan comes off better to this point. Um, his only major flaw that I saw was that he did not try to take Drury's bluff because it's conceivable that the Union Navy could have sailed all the way to the docks in Richmond, not only with their guns, but also carrying troops. And Drury's Bluff kept him from doing that. And the Battle of Drury's Bluff uh, prevented the Federal Navy from going up the river. Had he sent land troops across, he might have taken, he probably could have taken the fort and he could have sent Burnside up, in, who was in North Carolina, and just taken Richmond. But so I think that was a poor decision there. And it, kind of a myopic decision, if you will, as I'm focused on my land war, my own glory, I, I kind of think. But I don't have a real problem with them until we get to the seven days. Okay. <laughs> and then the, the wheels come off the cart at that point. Whole right? other story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Now, yes, Drew's opinion. Drew might have a different opinion. Well, but, and you know, and Drew, you, you mentioned there's a whole lot of myth and, and, and mythology and legend about this. And I think a lot of that centers around these two commanders. So uh, tell me, uh, you know, why should we think of these two guys beyond the popular conception of them as, as both being subpar. I've only come to this, having gone through this, I've only come to this idea that I think both these guys were, or not, not just both of them, I think the Army's commanders, because there are multiple guys, as Doug and I explored moving around and about, um, I think the Army commanders themselves um, are, are a product of that place and time, right? Here we are sitting 160 years later with our libraries behind us that allow us to look at them from a really critical point of view and perspective. Um, but you know, when you when you think about the time and the place, and that's what I really love doing um, about this process is I, I started with primary source materials. I did not start with secondary source materials. And I started reading these letters back and forth. And 
you know, you have somebody like McClellan who on, you know, what is it? D plus two. Um, so the, the second day of his campaign, he only has a third of his army in front of him. He's got a bad map. Um, he attacks a position, uh, Lee's mill and it doesn't go so well. And then all of a sudden he's got people, uh, like, or was it Erasmus Case who's, who's writing. And I think the quote is that no part of this line can be taken by storm. McClellan's like, that's interesting. So the next day he assigns Hancock to try to take it by storm. Uh, and then a couple days later, he's got a guy that goes up in a balloon and he's like, you know, this is a really big line. And it looks like there are a lot of Confederate soldiers down here. And McClellan's like, that's great. But he still tries to take yet again by storm. So throughout the entirety of even the siege of Yorktown, this guy who's been sort of branded as having the slows ignores his, his division commanders, his corps commanders, his primary engineer, I think uh, Barnard says something like, you know, it's it's the most magnificent magnificent line of modern times. And they keep sending sorties against the Yorktown line, even without his army being up. So if you think about somebody like McClellan, who we always say is overly cautious and he was duped uh, by faulty intelligence. It, if you look at the primary source information, specifically his letters, he may still be asking for more soldiers, but he's not stopped telling his division commanders and his corps commanders to press against the Yorktown line. Um, I, th I think I counted something like over, over a dozen sorties against the line, even after the siege engines uh, really come into to being, which is amazing to me for somebody who's been typecast as being slow. Um, conversely, you have somebody like Magruder. I don't know how many times I've read books or articles about Magruder um, having his men parade back and forth to deceive the Union Army. And when that line is cited, I've followed it to the official records and it's not there. I, I can't find the order. Um, but what I can find is, is two comments from two soldiers, one, I think, 14th Louisiana and one from 14th North Carolina where they both talked, and I think one specifically uses the word deceive about having these fires and stuff set and marching to and from, but they don't really intimate that it is, it, it's, they've been ordered to do it. It seems to be part of this sort of um, constant reinforcing of the Confederate line. You know, but to Doug's point about archives, there is one citation that was supposed to be in the Museum of the Confederacy from Magruder to a guy named, I think, Cummings, who may be in command of some Georgians where apparently in that letter that nobody's cited fully, it, it talks about him trying to maneuver guys or Magruder trying to maneuver people to deceive them, but I, I can't find an order. Um, so if you have it, please let me know. Uh, and then also please let John Corstein, myself, Michael Moore, and everybody else who's written about the peninsula know. Um, so I think doing these, doing this for me, uh, to go back to your question about the, the Army's commanders, um, gave me a chance to look at both team blue and gray with fresh sets of eyes. I mean, people like, you know, the first corps who shows up at Eltham's Landing with their back to the York River, like that's kind of a pucker factor moment, but yet they don't, they don't let it stop them. So I think it's important when we write about the Civil War, when we research the Civil War to focus on what they saw in front of them and what they knew at the moment and not what we see and know today. Hey, Chris, if I could sure. jump back in. Yeah. Um, no one will ever confuse me with the McClellan lover. Okay, but I want to defend him in a couple of things. The first thing is Lincoln made him leave a large amount of troops in D.C. to protect the Capitol. And the second thing is he kept most of the First Corps away from him. And these are well-known facts, but I think it's about a third of his army altogether, core to a third of his army he's missing that he's counting on. So the other thing is 
when he gets to Yorktown, he kind of follows a more modern doctrine. Believe it or not, we think of siege as being old fashioned. But he wants to use metal instead of men to take Yorktown, which I commend him for. He wanted to bring up his heavy siege guns and drive the Confederates out, which he did, as opposed to sending thousands of men to their deaths. So I commend him for that. Um, Johnston, I said he could read a map. And against Lee's wishes and Davis's wishes, he abandoned um, Manassas and Centerville and went down to the Rappahannock line when he saw obvious that um, McClellan would go, use a river. And then when he came down to Yorktown, he found McClellan's heavy equipment coming up, heavy guns coming up. He backed up to Richmond, which was a good move because then he was behind the Chickahominy and McClellan was a long way from home. Um, rather than try to stay down there and be flanked, he was proven correct that he could be flanked by water. Eltham's Landing proved that that could happen. So I don't love either of them, but I got to give the devils their due. Yeah, it, it seems, you know, kind of funny to me that, you know, um, Johnson's reputation, and, and I'm no Johnson lover either, um, but, uh, you know, his reputation is that he just backs up and backs up and backs up and keeps doing it and keeps doing it and keeps doing it. And you see it time and time again during the war. But uh, we, we sort of forget in this particular instance that he knew that was going to happen to him and he, you know, had no other choice. You know, if he's outflanked by the rivers on both sides, what's he supposed correct. to do? He was right? proven you know? correct in both counts, <laughs> you know, so there you go. Yeah. Um, let me swing back to McClellan for a second, because, uh, you know, Drew, I think you bring up a lot of uh, really important points for us to consider. And it's hard to look at McClellan without knowing what we know after 160 years of hindsight. And, and we sort of look at McClellan as the whole person and then put him back into a historical moment like this instead of just being in that historical moment with him to begin with. And so if we put ourselves in the in the shoes of 1862 George McClellan, that's a different character than what we've kind of come to know over these years. And, and that I think unduly influences the way we look at, you know, the actions that unfolded. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, I've been booed at a round table before for talking about how tenacious McClellan was in the West Virginia campaign of 61 and the early peninsula of 62. Um, I don't quite understand why, um, <laughs> but, you know, I've, I've also had people who are be like, well, you, you, you know, you, you can't give McClellan props for Williamsburg and Eltham's landing. Cause he wasn't even on the field. Okay. How many army commanders do we know of who aren't actually on the field, but know their division and corps commanders well enough to, to put a plan into motion. Right. And that's exactly what happens at Williamsburg or for example, uh, that is Harper's, their job. Correct. Harper's Ferry, Antietam. Um, but yeah, I, th I think it's in, it, I think it's incumbent on us to look at what's in front of these guys in 1862. Um, you know, as Doug pointed out, he doesn't have a third of his army with him. And, um, you know, was it on on April 4th, when uh, the Army of the Potomac surges forward to the lines at Yorktown, having left uh, Fort Monroe, only a third of what he was going to take with him had arrived. Um, you know, conversely, you got folks like Joe Johnston and Magruder on the opposite and who are waiting for folks like Gustavus Smith and Hugh to show up on the field and they're doing everything that they can to keep their guys in the ranks. Um, I think people tend to forget at Yorktown, um, the original Confederate uh, enlistment period was expiring. So you got the, the army commanders on Team Gray who have this Union army that every day seems to get a little bit bigger in front of them. And at the same time, they got colonels from regiments coming up to them and they're like, we're supposed to go home tomorrow. What do you want me to do? Um, and that's that's no small task, not to mention feeding these guys and the horses. Um, D.H. Hill 
has probably my favorite letter from the whole campaign. He's sitting um, in his position in old Yorktown proper. And I want to say that his letter specifically comments that he has two guns that can reach the Union lines. And I want to say that he's got like a dozen, maybe 16 rounds of ammunition total. And then he ends his letter um, to his CO by saying that he has this horrible candle and he can barely see the lines he's writing on. Um, so to think about somebody like D.H. Hill in this moment, um, trying to keep his his brigades and divisions together as a cohesive force um, is just amazing to me to think about. And then, of course, the guys who who had to actually serve on the line. So I think D.H. Hill is always a happy camper. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he's like proper Eeyore. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating to me. And I mean, when you talk about something like Eltham's landing, you know, Franklin's division, um, having arrived sort of the third weekish of April, 1862 and, and working with the engineers to put up these flat boats and these, you know, big ladders so that they could in theory, climb the, climb the heights of Gloucester point to, to finally break the Yorktown line, finally getting off the boats you know, May 2nd or 3rd, when the Yorktown line just goes up in flames and then having to rush back on the boats, but then literally sailing around the entirety of the Confederate army. Um, you know, it's just one of these magnificent moments of of just strategic thinking um, that, you know, is is thought about on high, but then applied by your division commanders and your corps commanders. So it's, it's fascinating to me to go stand in the ground and, and think about these things. I mean, I got lost in the engineer's report about how they lashed all the flat boats together so that they could move batteries of artillery with the limbers behind them so they could float into action. I mean, that's cool stuff. Just, it, it makes, it sort of, you know, relights that, that fire for this time period. Doug, I know one of the things that you did with uh, primary sources is some detective work on your own, where you tracked down the spot where Joe Johnson was wounded during seven pines right. and, you know, got some maps and some sources. Tell us a little bit about that. Cause I thought that was a really neat piece of uh, original well, research. You asked the question, if I remember correctly. And so I went over to the Richmond battlefield park and Bobby Crick and I started looking through some stuff and we found one of his aides letters that said that Johnson made it to the tracks and went back 200 yards and he was with him. So, okay, I'll take that as valid. And then we got a um, Google map to figure out where that might be. And we measured it out. I went out there and it's approximate 200 yards and we went back up nine mile road and it turns out there was a house there. And Bob said, Hey, this was the only house in, in the area up to the Adams house, which is up the street about another mile. This had to be this house. So once we found the house, the Hitchcock house, we were pretty much there. So that's how we kind of nailed it down. And, you know, completely unremarked and unnoticed and, you know, nothing there to, to, uh, to mark it significantly. Pretty surprising, but, actually, because it's actually pretty clear when you go back and look. Well, there it is, you know. And so. you consider the, the ramifications of that shot, which changed the nature of the war because it knocks Johnson out of command. A huge moment and uh, completely unrecognized. I thought you did great work tracking that down. Yeah, thanks. Yeah. So, of course, I wondered, you know, now today, I think there's a, um, an old auto parts store there. I just wondered why John, Johnson didn't take cover in the auto parts store and keep himself uh, protected. So so I want both of you to comment a little bit about uh, Fair Oaks, Seven Pines, because, you know, after Johnson is flushed out of his position, 
in the middle of the peninsula and he heads up to the defenses of Richmond. Um, he doesn't stay hunkered down. He's got to look for a way to take a swing. And so Fair Oaks happens as a result. Um, how important is that battle? Why does he, why does he launch it in the first place? Um, you know, how does that tie into this, the, the overall peninsula campaign? Uh, it's actually pretty he- interesting if I might be, um, the battle actually was going to be fought a different way. He got word that McDowell's corps was coming down from Fredericksburg, and Lincoln actually ordered it down for a day and then turned around and ordered it back. When he got that word from Jeb Stuart, he said, well, I have to attack the units north. There were three federal corps north of the river and two corps south of the Chickahominy. And so he was going to send Gustavus Smith and A.P. Hill, who was a brand new division commander, over the river and attack somewhat what like Lee did a month later. But he gets the word the next day that McDowell has turned around and gone back. So what he sees is south of the river, there are only two Union Corps. One is several miles back, and the fourth corps is at the intersection of Seven Pines and Nine Mile Road with one division advanced a mile, which anyone cares to know where that is. It's where the Sandstone Library is today if you're out there. And he sees an opportunity and it rains heavily. It's been raining all month and it rains really heavily. So he decides he's going to attack that division, and then the Corps and destroy them, and possibly even the other, and force McClellan to retreat. He has a really good plan. Uh, He's going to launch a a, a pincher attack with Longstreet coming down one road, uh, UG coming up another road, D.H. Hill going straight down the Williamsburg Road, and it gets totally fouled up. And so the result of the battle is really, the only result of the battle is 11,000 casualties, and then Johnston is wounded and is out because no ground is gained at all. When Lee takes command, he pulls the troops back to their starting position. So it was, just, it was a, a bloody disaster, really, except that Johnston was out. Drew, how do you assess uh, Seven Pines and Fair Oaks? You know, it, it's interesting. It's, it, they're not engagements that I had studied heavily before we started this process of the book. And first and foremost, the landscape up there isn't really... Uh, as clear maybe as it is on other battlefields developed (laughs) but going back to this sort of mantra of you know judge judge the men if we need to judge them at all in the moment i don't see an alternative other other than to attack and i think it's it's the right moment albeit maybe a little out of character for him to do that um but yeah, I don't, I don't see an alternative. And of course, again, looking, looking at the engagement today and thinking about the men who lost their lives there, we question why. Um, but is, is that not the moment of, of sort of check or the inertia of the campaign is stopped, maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, but again, and not to, not to over reiterate it, but I, I don't, having read it now and looked at the source information from those days leading up to um, and of course, the subsequent conversation after, I don't, I don't see an alternative. What, where, where else to go? Um, you know, what, what's your, what's the other cards that are in your deck? Um, I think Johnson had no, no choice. I, w- I agree with you. Yeah. I think the, it was totally mismanaged, though. That was the problem. Which really doesn't seem all that dissimilar from the way the seven days unfold, where Lee comes up with these elaborate attack plans that seem to go afoul for various different reasons. Uh, maybe it's just bad mojo uh, around Richmond, I suppose. Well, one thing, one thing to remember, and anybody who studied probably knows this, but for the newer people, the Army commanders haven't commanded armies of this size before. 
I mean, the Mexican War, the armies were vastly smaller. So these, this is new to everybody. So I give them a little bit of a pass on some of this because they haven't done it before. It takes even Lee as great as everyone thinks he did. Um, he didn't do all that greatly in the seven days, really, if you look at what happened, because you were talking about it. A lot of mismanagement and so forth, but that's a whole other story. But here, Johnston, you know, Longstreet didn't follow instructions as we know them, and Johnston didn't really take an active part in managing the battle. So it, it kind of, it, it was a good plan, and I, I'm, I agree with Drew, it's his only card he had to play. Well, and haven't we just reorganized part of the armies too? We did. Right. So not only are they the largest groups we've ever seen before on a landscape, but the personalities are all brand new to you as, as a commander at, at any ilk. And I think about, not to be Jersey-centric here, but I think about Philip Carney arriving. And when Carney gets onto the field, I mean, he's coming onto the field with not just his division, but he's seeing other brigades and divisions that aren't his. And he just is, what are you doing here? Okay, go this way. Um, you know, or or as they start to to move away from that line too. I mean, Philip Carney's, well, of course it's him. So he's just deputizing everybody as he goes around. Um, but it's, a, I think, a great example of where we're, we're in a moment where it's the largest armies we've seen. We're in a moment where there are people brand new to you. You don't know how they respond to, you know, direction and order. Can you be hands off with them? As you said before, Doug, it's your job, but do you know if they're going to stand up to their job? Um, and then, of course, you got people running into each other and trying to figure out who belongs to whose army. And you know, it's just pandemonium. Staff work is is abysmal. At seven, at seven Pines, staff work is pretty bad during the seven days. And to Drew's point, um, Johnston's got Magruder, who's new to him. He's got Eugene, who's new to him. And Lee will have even more people new to him to, to command. And it's difficult if you don't know these people. You got to judge them, got to let them see what they do. You know, you got to give them a try first. And they do well or they don't. And if you don't have the staff to make sure your orders are carried out, it's a problem. One of the things that I've really found cool about this conversation is you've you've both talked about a, a process of discovery that you each went through working on different parts of this book. There were things you guys learned working on this book, which uh, I know as a writer, I'm always delighted. You know, one of the reasons I write things is so I can learn and, and discover. Um, what was that like for each of you to to not just know the material, but then find things that challenged your understanding of the material. Doug. Okay. Well, of course, Hanover Courthouse was brand new to me and wasn't even fought at Hanover Courthouse, which I found interesting. <laughs> I found it fascinating because I wasn't familiar with the ground at all. And it's almost in my backyard. The other thing was seven pines and, particularly Fair Oaks, a guy named Vic Vignola, I'll give him some props here. He's got a book coming out from Savas, I think later this year. He's the one who took me out there and pointed some things out to me. And we started, we started really researching. It was like, it was so exciting. You know, that's what I find exciting about this kind of work is discovering new things and changing the way you think about things. And I think, I think I finally understand what really happened here. I think it's it's just fabulous. How about you, Drew? I I worked on these three specific chapters, wholly focused on primary source stuff first, and then once I sort of had them like um, framed out, 
with my primary source quotes in there and sort of this linear feel of how I feel like the events went down and why, I went back and I reread a couple of the secondary source information on them. And I disagreed with some of it. And I thought to myself, okay, the only reason I can stand here and disagree with some of it is because they went out on a limb and did the exact same thing six years, 20 years, 30 years ago. Um, so when I sort of started writing the narrative to connect my frame on those three chapters, my my sort of overriding thought was that, okay, I feel, I feel like I can sort of present McClellan in a different way here. And I feel like I can present Eltham's Landing in a different way here. That also tips the hat to people like Michael Moore and, and Bill Palmer. But when I was writing them specifically, my, my hope was that people would do exactly the same thing, um, hopefully in, in years to come. I, I want somebody to come back and, and find the missing recruiter order that says, please march around in circles so we confuse everybody. Um, you know, and I, I want somebody to come back and be like, you know what, Doug, I think, I think he actually got shot 200 yards in this direction. Like I, I, I wanted to, to use Chris's phrase from before, I wanted to add to the historiographical record without coming out and being like, I'm right. Uh, I wanted to add something that sort of suggests an alternative and hopefully inspires people to go out and see their own battlefields and explore their own battlefields, but then also come explore ours and say, did we, did we get it right? Uh, and bring their knowledge and resources with them. So for me, the process was invigorating because I sort of felt like I was I was adding to a discussion, not ending one. Does that make Absolutely. sense? Yeah, yeah. You're, you're well, like, it, it's the current culmination of a process, but the process is ongoing. Right. And as more evidence shows up and more interpretation becomes available, um, hopefully people can build on that. Now, you you mentioned some some great folks, uh, Moore, Palmer, and you know one of the things I, I want to underscore is that. To Hell or Richmond is essentially like an intro level. Here's your first blush uh, if you want to know something about it. And then you go to guys like that who've written uh, in depth and extensively. And, um, you know, but sometimes that can be a little daunting as your first exposure to something. So, you know, this is really sort of intended as that, that dip your toe in opportunity. So, Drew, this was your first book. Uh, what was that like for you? Uh, frustrating um, because, because, as I mentioned, it's hard to drive. Uh, or sit in a truck as you as you bounce. Um, it's also hard to find inspiration in a hotel room. Um, you know, ha just naturally not being sort of in an office environment all the time is is what made it difficult. And then I think there were multiple times where, you know, I sort of joked before about me not having writing chops where I, I would have these ideas or ways to sort of thread um, one one primary source account and a date and a time together to sort of build that narrative. But I I could talk about it clearly but then when i opened the word document to transcribe that out it just it just wasn't there mm -hmm. um so i'm i'm thankful for all of the other authors from the emerging <laughs> series who sort of not just uh helped not just helped encourage me to re to remember that this was a 101 it wasn't supposed to be like a heavy hitting academic treatise mm -hmm. um but all the other authors who had written about it, who I'd literally used their book to go out. So at a certain point, I guess, to answer your question, Chris, um, I think I got too close to it. And I, I had to pull myself back and, and remember sort of like, you know, this is supposed to be a hello and welcome to the Battle of Williamsburg and the siege to Yorktown. Um, it was eye-opening for me, um, as any first experience would be, I guess. 
Yeah, wonderful. Well, I can say, and I think Doug would agree, uh, you're an excellent writer and you've got uh, wonderful chops. And, uh, you know, Doug has this great conversational style. And you can tell he's out on the battlefield doing a lot of tours that comes across in the way his writing is put together. Um, as an editor, to me, the the funnest thing about editing is I can hear everyone's different voices and sort of what turns them into the writers they are based on you know, knowing who they are as people. And uh, I definitely see each of your personalities and backgrounds in your writing styles, which is really neat. Um, comes ac comes across great. So um, anything I haven't asked you about your book that either of you think I should have? Oh, that's a good question. Hmm. This is one of those things that, you know, you might be like, oh, nope, we got it all. And then we'll finish. And you're like, oh, wait, I know what you should have asked me. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, right now, I think you've covered it. But as soon as we hang up. <laughs> I think, uh, I don't know if necessarily you would have asked me this question, but I mentioned sort of earlier on about the Yorktown line, or rather the Williamsburg line uh, being created because people studied history. And it's fascinating to me when you look at the 1862 Peninsula campaign and the subsequent actions along the peninsula in 1863 and 1864, how eerily similar they were to the British in 1815, the American Revolution in 1780 and 81, how the various choke points, the road networks, the river networks, places like Drury's Bluff. I, this, I, I think it's almost preconceived as to how this is going to turn out to be honest with you uh if you if you study history so um you know i would say that you know well, for me the fascinating thing about wrapping this up and i think we talked about it a little bit in the appendices is how eerily similar uh this event is to several that that come before it um so I'd be really interested to see if scholarship uh, about the american revolution the campaign to richmond in 80 um subsequent campaigns around 81 maybe look at 1862 um, with a little, a little bit of a different perspective. You know, I, I'll throw this out. Again, I'm not a McClellan lover, far from it, but his plan was, overall plan was good. He got to the same exact ground that Grant got to two years later with 50,000 less casualties. I think there's something to be said for that. Yeah, there's something to think about for sure. Well, I've never thought about that. I'm not before. knocking Grant, don't get me wrong. Yeah. But. So, um, so let me wrap up, Drew, by um, giving you the opportunity to just sort of make a pitch for um, the many different sites that take advantage of the Civil War Trails Network that you are that you brought into this book. Because uh, you know, I think if people follow this book, they're going to see a lot of really cool off the beaten path places, a lot of things that really tie into that network, and also some great hospitality. Um, tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, uh, so, geez, we didn't even get into the naval operations. Of course, we talked about a peninsula, which is bounded by water, right? But we we didn't talk about Burnside's campaign. We didn't talk about the iron boats. Right. Um, we talked a little bit about Drury's Bluff. Um, but, you know, armed, armed with this book in your hand, um, you can explore coastal Virginia. Uh, I think we have something to the tune of like 60 Civil War trail sites in coastal Virginia. Uh, almost two dozen of them are about the campaign. Um, there's a Civil War trail site for the sinking of the Congress and the Cumberland, and of course the Virginia um, action, or rather the Monitor and Merrimack, however you want to name the boat. Uh, and then, of course, along the way, you'll find places like Ironclad Distillery, which is phenomenal. Um, you know, Stewart's Ride around McClellan will get you places. Uh, for example, a Civil War trail sign is at New Kent uh, Winery, which is an excellent place to stop and realize that Stewart's guys were 
we're getting drunk along their along their ride too um maybe yours as well but you know going back to doug's point there's such power in place there's incredible power in place so if you know if you if you read the chapter on eltham's landing and you you think to yourself man i'd really like to go visit it there are two civil war trail signs uh waiting for you and um probably my favorite probably my favorite site of the peninsula campaign is that second civil war trails site at eltham's landing and um it is it is a moment um you have these these three union brigades with their back to the york river having now been pushed back to this little tiny beachhead by what is almost a division under whiting of confederate soldiers and they're sitting in this wood line and the union soldiers have a couple cannon around them and just one confederate flag after another just appears in this wood line across this field and you can stand at the civil war trail sign and it's like pucker factor level 10. and that's the power of being able to take a book and go out and stand at a place like you know the civil war trail sign at eltham's landing so you know get out and explore go see these sites go visit you know young's mill and lee's mill and dam number one the winds mill line of earthworks at newport news park are absolutely incredible um they are the most intricate i've ever seen and, and the largest i've ever seen so go out and explore that's my takeaway very good the book is called to hell or richmond uh guy uh, the 1862 peninsula campaign and then if you get up the peninsula and you get yourselves to richmond you can then follow up with doug's book um richmond shall not be given up a guy um the seven days battle i keep wanting to say a guide too there's guide stuff worked into them but these aren't particularly guide books necessarily. <laughs> um to hell or richmond richmond shall not be given up uh, doug crenshaw drew gruber thank you both so much for spending some time with us today thanks for the opportunity thanks chris and uh for all of our friends here at emerging civil war i'm chris mikowski we will see you online and on the battlefield. And before we wrap up, I need to give a shout out of thanks to our engineer, Jackson Mikowski, for piecing together our pieces. I want to thank Sarah K. Byerly and Edward Alexander for their administrative support on the podcast. And I want to thank the Second South Carolina String Band for providing our theme music. You can find them on Facebook and on YouTube. Search for Second South Carolina String Band. And don't forget to find us online at EmergingCivilWar.com. More than 30 historians providing free content every day, keeping you in touch with America's defining event so that we can continue to benefit from the lessons that history has to offer us. Find us online at EmergingCivilWar.com. For Doug Crenshaw and Drew Gruber, I'm Chris Mikowski. Thanks so much for being with us. Don't forget to share. Don't forget to like. Don't forget to have your friends tune in to the Emerging Civil War podcast so that you can help us continue to spread the gospel of the Civil War. We will see you online and on the battlefield.